0: Yeah. Let's let's start. Um, any prayers for tonight? Any prayers? I'm gonna get around to your j- j- joke, Bob, in a second, but any prayers? You asked to be blind, you know, of Bob. Sorry, Doc. You asked to be blind, you know, of Bob. Oh yeah. Let's start. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Thank you, Lord, again, for the gift of our life this day. Um, Chesterton's line from last week, Why do I have another day? Um, It's it's a good line for us to carry around daily. You know, we're still here. Um, Everything about ethics of Elfland grows out of that one point. So it'll be a big point tonight. But um, we are glad to be here, Um, how good you are, how grateful we are. Um, I ask a special blessing on Bob and Karen and their travels, and on all the other people who are um, not here. Um, I offer our thanksgiving for the recovery of um, people in both parishes in St. Francis and here and ask a special blessing on couples um, who are trying to get pregnant, um, um, two of them. Um, one one couple is pregnant and they're expecting soon another is struggling so be with them please. Help us all to grow in our faith. The, the reading this last weekend was from Paul, where he says that faith is the realization of what's hoped for, evidence of things not seen. It's the realization of what is hoped for. It's those things we long for, as if they're not here, but it's also our faith is the evidence of things not seen. So there's a sureness, and I want to come to this after our prayer, There's a sureness to our faith that reason can't give us, even though our focus for months now has been on reason. Um, The whole point of it is to strengthen our faith. um, Or at least to to give it a better support. um, Because a solid faith um, opens the whole kingdom to us. Um, So strengthen us in our faith People came to you to be healed, their faith was so strong, and where people approached you who were without faith, you could do nothing. Um, Everything you depended, everything you did depended on people being open to you, so I ask for a spirit of openness, a greater openness on the part of all of us. Um, Help us to be open, knowing, believing fully that our life is richer, greatly enriched by our faith. It's like a world fills up when it was empty before. So strengthen all of us in our faith um, that your kingdom is more present to us in all that we do and that we take that kingdom to others in all that we do. We offer these prayers in your name, Christ our Lord, Amen. Um, let's do, let's go back to the, but before we start, I got a, a wonderful email from Bob last week and I don't know what happened because I responded and, and apparently didn't get I don't know what's going on. And I, I would be grateful if all of you, those of you who are here and those of you who are not here, would send me an email just to confirm. Doc, can you send out the roll sheet again? I'm going to send it out again. I've, I'm trying to update it. Oh, here. Can you, can you send it around? Um, so um, we, we've got to collate two roll sheets, one from um, a, a separate sheet that I made for the apologetics and the other, the other one from C's and I've just got to make them one so there may be some confusion here. I don't know what happened but Bob sent an email and I really enjoyed it. I don't even want to, I don't want to tell it. I'd be glad if you want to tell it. Uh, I'm not sure I can tell
1: it
2: all the way through. No,
0: that's all right. It's a funny email. I'm, I'll just give you a sense of what's going on. It's, it's two guys on an airplane and one a cowboy and another guy something and and the other guy says to the cowboy "Do you mind if we talk because it'll make the time pass faster and the guy said sure and the guy who was not the cowboy said let's talk about the fact that there is no God there is something like um, no immortality of the soul or there's no evil or things like that I'm not going to give you the answer I'm going to send it because what I did was send back to Bob and I because he was cautious and he said do you think this might offend anybody? He was trying to be careful of everybody and I I said absolutely not. It's got a bad word in there. I mean, the SH. I thought it was fine. But he was trying to be careful of everybody and somehow my response didn't get back to him, but I'll send it out to you. It's just a funny email and I was glad. Every once in a while I get an email from you guys and I'll respond because there's something so good in it You know, some of you have had thoughts on particular courses or, I mean, classes, individual classes or, and I've always enjoyed them and there are so many times when I thought the whole class would enjoy this. Um, And I write back and I don't always hear from everybody, I don't know what happened, but I'll send it out. Um, If you don't get it in the next day or two, write me. Let me know because it means something technically is wrong. Anyway, it's a funny email. It's, it's, it's so appropriate for our time and what's going on, and it's, it's funny. So, um, I sent out an email today. I hope you all got it. Our schedule will be to do two chapters a week of Chesterton through the end of the month and the uh, beginning of September, probably the first week of September, and that should do it, at which point um, I'm planning to find a date, hold on, I've got to let Connie on. Doc, if you notice anybody coming on, tell me, would you? So, Connie, are you? Yes. Oh, good, good. You're going to show yourself or you're going to hide behind that C? Doc, can you put these on? Um, Review philosophy, um, materialism, and skepticism then tonight. It's the materialism, evolution, um, um, nominalism, progress, pragmatism, and the wheel. Can you guys see? You can move over if you, if you want. Oh, Connie, you can hear me OK, yes? Okay, okay, it would be good to see your face, but you may be eating and so, anyway, glad you're here. There you are. Oh, where are you? Wow, be safe, be safe. Yeah, <laughs> this is funny. I don't have to think about that. We have a strict rule in our car when somebody's driving, you don't have. But um, I'm glad you're with us. Um, Anyway, that's our schedule, okay? We'll plan to have a dinner sometime after that. I've talked with Father and Ricky about the dinner and coming. We just have to schedule the date. And then you know afterwards, we'll do Matthew, John, and Revelation. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. It'll, it'll be wonderful, certainly for me, to see what your response is to the men with, that we've been reading. John Paul, uh, Fidel Ratio, Benedict Regensburg, C.S. Lewis's abolition, and Chester North. It'll be interesting to see what your response is when we go to the Gospels. Because all of these men are writing from the Gospel, but they're not speaking explicitly about you know, they're not going out and proselytizing or talking about Christ. So it'll be interesting to see what your response is when we do the, we do the gospel. So, okay, that's our plan. Sorry,
3: what is this?
0: Skepticism. S.K. Okay. Would you, you want me to do this? She acts like she can't read my writing. Actually, it's a bin joke in our family because I can't read it. It's gotten worse and worse over years. OK, let's do a poem, and then we'll start. I remember last week, I, I, um, I read from some medieval lyrics. And one of the interests for me in going back was the lyrics, two of the lyrics that we read had to do with states of madness. You know, they were describing going mad. Um, Fowls in the frith, the fishes in the flood, in imon wakse wood. much saura iwaka witha, for for best of boon and blood. Um, He's going mad. Christ left us with a burden. Everything in nature is going on the way it always does, but God came into our world and died, and um, offered an atonement that threw everything off. (laughs) Um, Sometime in the next couple of weeks, I'm gonna read Alan Tate's cross again, because to me it's one of the most powerful poems ever been written on the cross. Because it threw everything off. Either God revealed himself, God came into the world, um, to atone, to help us recover a lost nature. I mean, all that happened in the fall. But one of the effects of what he did was not just to help those who wanted to be recovered to, to, um, re- to recover their unity in God. It's that made a lot of people turn against Christ. We already see it in the Bible. I mean, they, we crucified him, we killed him, we put him on a cross. So there are lots of people who want nothing to do with him. So it's create what it did was intensify a condition after he came. So let me continue with um, with another poem, one more poem from the Middle Ages. The wheel. Thanks. This is only a small glimpse of what she has to do every day. I'm sorry. Adam lay bound. Okay, the two of you behave. You. Adam lay bound, okay. Adam lay bounden, bounded in a bond. For a thousand winter thought he not too long. And all was for an apple, an apple that he took. As Klerkes findin' written, written in her book, he had the apple taken been, the apple taken been, they had never our lady been heaven queen, nor blessed be the time that apple taken was. Therefore we moen singing Deo gratias. If we hadn't fallen, Christ would have not done what he did. Mary would have not done what she did, and our gratitude for our lives would be diminished. Um, what's the phrase? I'm missing it. Um, the happy fall. Yeah. What? And what's the Latin for the um, the happy fall? The, the Felix Copa The or not, what's the? But the happy fall is the phrase that um, it. The cost of it was God dying on a cross, but the effect was that it was this extraordinary amplifying of beauty and goodness in the world. So we have more reason for being grateful than we did before. We've got Mary, we've got Christ um, in a way that we didn't before what he did. So I'll read it once more and then let it to sit. Adam lay a bond in a bond for a thousand winter, thought he not too long and all was for an apple, an apple that he took, as clerkes find it written, written in her book. Now had the apple taken been, the apple taken been, now had never Our Lady been heaven queen, she would have never been the queen, the mother of God? Could anybody imagine that a human being would be a mother of God? Um, we've got a feminist movement trying to make the lives better for women. Can anything compare um, a mother of God doing what Mary did, submitting herself to God? Now, had never Our Lady had been heaven queen, nor blessed be the time that apple taken was. Therefore we moan singen Deo gratios. Thanks be to God. Felix Culpa, isn't that it? Felix Coppa yeah, happy yeah right happy yeah happy fall Felix Coppa okay okay let's let's start um, I want to go back just to two things in our review just to very quickly and then I want to get ta- get on to um, the, the two chapters tonight uh, um, suicide of thought and um, and the ethics of elfland because I I'm not sure how you guys are finding all of this when I when I go after when I go over the chapters in preparation for the class I often think <laughs> I'm hoping you're enjoying Chester because I think he's an amazing person he's just funny and he's he's so brilliant um, and sometimes hard to read, and in Ethics of Elfland he's writing about fairy tales. So he's not um, he's not prescribing a morality, he's not saying you ought to do this, you ought to do this, you ought to do this. He's talking about fairy tales. But in talking about fairy tales he's making a very clear distinction between the way that the knowledge that science offers us and something else. And I just don't know how you find that, so I want to get to that tonight. Um, so that I hope if you have any questions they'll get answered and also because it's a setup for the next chapter because in the next chapter Chesterton's going to take on both the optimist and the pessimist. He's going to make very clear in, in the way that he does with fairy tales and sciences, you know, that there's two very different ways of looking at the world, the way an optimist looks at things and the way a pessimist looks at things. And he's going to say both of them are flawed, badly flawed. So, we continue to to go deeper into the mysteries of our faith. Remember, because all of this rests on the Apostles' Creed, um, but through reason. Because remember, when Chester when Chesterton gets to the end of this, the end of this, he's going to say, all of his early life got straightened out as he began to deal with these men with all their philosophies and he still hadn't quite come to Christianity yet. So long before he got to Christianity, he was already seeing the depth of rationality in the Christian faith. Okay? Um, so I, I, I want to get to that for sure, but to begin, I'd like to go back to um, a principle from the last chapter because it's basic to everything he's saying there. Um, You remember at the end of of The the Maniac, Chesterton um, said there were two fundamental philosophies of the modern world. You, you could as easily say there are two fundamental ways of thinking, modes of thought. One of them was materialism and the other one was skepticism. Okay, But the setup for his conclusions about those two philosophies comes earlier. In my book, it's on page 224, remember he's saying that the 90% of the chairs in The universities are filled with madmen, these people who are educating other people, who are teaching them to think the way they do, so they're encouraging people in a direction of madness, basically. He doesn't put it that way, but put starkly, that's what he's saying. And he defines what madness means for him. He says, page 224, A man cannot think himself out of mental evil, for it is actually the organ of thought that has become diseased, ungovernable. It's the mind itself, what we do with it. He can only be saved by will or faith. It's like cracking somebody's head or slapping. Let's say a child, if a mother's, you know, if a child's going hysterical and a mother happened to slap and said, stop. You know, just a shock of something. The moment his mere reason moves, it moves in the old circular rut. He will go round, round his logical circle, just as a man in a third-class carriage on the inner circle will go round and round. Decision is the whole business here. A door must be shut forever. Every remedy is a desperate remedy. Every cure is a miraculous cure. Okay? Go down a few lines. He said, Their attitude is really this. The man must stop thinking if he's to go on living. The counsel is one of intellectual amputation. They have to do something with his mind. Page 222, he says, when he's trying to define the condition of this mental mm, diminution, this lessening of a man's mental powers, now speaking quite externally and empirically, we may say that the strongest and most unmistakable mark of madness is this combination between a logical completeness and a spiritual contraction. The lunatic's theory explains a large number of things, but it does not explain them in a large way. So you can have a circle. is always an image of infinity, which just completeness. But you can have a small circle, you can have a large one. And by the way, since he uses that circle, I want to remind everybody here because I'm I'm not sure that I'll pick it up later, but I don't want I don't want you guys to miss this. Remember when we were doing consolation of philosophy, Boethius towards the end of his argue was at the end of his argument was describing um, how important it was to understand how human beings know the way we know. That distinguishes us from angels and beasts. Let me see if I can do this. I hope I can do this. Let's see if this will work. Mm. if I can see if I can do this. Um, Remember Boethius said that there was a distinction between providence and fate and providence was um, imaged as the center of a circle and fate was imaged um, as the circumference. The farther away you are from the center the more trapped you are in fatalisms. And thinking in terms of necessity it has to be this you're caught up. We happened to do that when we were reading Lear if you remember and um, remember you could you could look at all of the characters in Lear um, in terms of that circle that some were closer to the center and some farther away. The ones who were farther away stayed that way they were on the circumference. They were caught by their own passions, trapped in their own motives, and they had ultimate Death's undoing. Lear was killed at the end, so was Cordelia, but both of them underwent conversions. Both of them were radically changed by everything that happened. Um, So we've had illustrations of Boethius' principle. He said, in order to understand the difference between providence and free will, or providence and fate, you have to understand the way man knows. And he says we know by our senses, by our imagination, by reason and in Latin, what he would have called intellectus, the difference in So senses, imagination, ratio, reason, reasoning one step at a time, and intellectus, grasping holes. Let me go through that again. Animals have senses, so do we. Yeah, there's this book in front of me. There's John, there's Mike. You see me and we see each other with our senses. But our mind does something with our senses so that we can grasp concepts. We can understand concepts, essences. We can get to universals. Animals can't. They don't have rational minds. So it's important to see the difference because the people at the center grasp things with their senses because we're human, but they can also see the ultimate meaning of things, basically, whereas people in the circumference don't. They're just caught up in their world. That's a very figurative metaphor, you know, it doesn't, in some ways it's it's interesting, but the question is, can we apply it ourselves? Um, Let me see if I can do this differently. Sorry. Thanks, Mike. Sorry. Sorry. Can everybody hear me okay? You all might want to take a step back. <laughs> Thanks, Mom. Um, Okay. Chesterton's Chesterton's definition is that both the madman and the sane man can be looked at in terms of thinking with the metaphor of a a circle. But he said the difference is this, and I want everybody to hold on to it. I just think it's fundamental to everything he's saying. Speaking quite internally, externally, and empirically, we may say that the strongest and most unmistakable mark of madness is this combination between a logical completeness and a spiritual contraction. That's his definition. Okay. Now, let me just take a minute with this. How does that apply to materialism and skepticism? Because he ends the chapter focusing on both of those modern disorders. He said, two of the marks of the modern mind are its uh, materialistic philosophy and its skepticism. Now, how does that definition apply to both of those philosophies? Is that clear? You've got, remember he said that they're in in um, Maniac, he's 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 focusing on these mental attitudes that that, um, that show a quality of madness in the modern mind. And he defines it here. I just read that twice now. And he ends focusing on two modern philosophies. We're going to go on to the others in the next chapter. I want to get to them directly. But that's where we left off last week, looking at skepticism and materialism. My question now, I want to be really clear so that everybody's understanding. How did both of those philosophies, materialism and skepticism, illustrate that definition? This combination between a logical completeness and a spiritual contraction. If you talk with a madman, right? Let's say you talk with a schizophrenic or a paranoic and and the guy says, everybody's after me. Even that guy out on the street is after me. And you point to him and say, but he's not even looking at you. He will always have an answer. He'll never he'll never lack for an answer. The trouble with our mind is so often it doesn't stop working. But the, the trouble is we have an answer for everything. But it's not always sane. Be. Wait, wait, let me just. So, you point to the guy and say, "Look, he's not even looking at you." And the, and the guy would say, logically, "Of course he's not looking at me. He doesn't want anybody to know he's after me, <laughs> right?" He will always have an answer. So Chesterton's Chesterton's definition is: uh, it's this combination between a logical completeness. Every madman has an answer for whatever you say to him. It's this contract or this combination of this. Logical completeness and a spiritual contraction. In terms of the spiritual world, the world narrows down. Sorry, Chuck, you go ahead.
1: No, I was going to say that the commonality is that they're um, they're internally consistent, but they're a very small piece of the truth.
0: The difference. So get, the difference between the madman and the and the sane man is what?
1: Um, the sane man may recognize the importance of being internally consistent, but doesn't. Uh, doesn't
0: confuse himself by thinking that's the complete explanation. Right. The, uh, to put it another way, the sane man is open to other things outside. He doesn't always have to control them with his thought or think he understands them all. That is, he's open to mystery. Put it simply, right? There's a larger world for him. For the sane man, there's not. He's stuck. That means he's got a reason for everything. He will not stand open, he will not wonder, he's got an answer for everything. The sane man, if he's sane, should be open knowing there's more going on in the world than meets his mind. Yes? Now my question here is how does materialism and skepticism illustrate that definition? Because as he said both of those are manifestations, symptoms of this inclination to madness in the modern world. Is that clear? stop making faces at me for a minute (laughs) will you not encourage her please she doesn't need any encouragement Um, on our way home last week we were talking about it and you had you were expressing your surprise thinking about that can you just go back and over your thoughts and share them here. Sure. And can you speak up? So. I'm not sure how relevant they are to what saying. Um, <laughs>
3: mean, awesome. um, I've always thought of materialism as. Can you speak
0: being,
3: up? I've always thought of materialism as being a materialist was someone who loved things, you know, cars, fur coats, good food, material things. <laughs> and it had never gone any much further than anything. I've never thought of
2: it as <clears throat> philosophy and the implications of the philosophy. Bob, well, can you hear? Okay. Yeah. And the implication
3: that was clear last week was that if you're a materialist in the philosophy sense, um, then there is nothing but what's material. And if there's nothing but what's material, then everything is, everything is determined. Which means that materialism
0: doesn't have to will. And I've never gone that far in my thinking. effect.
3: Wow. Say again, in I said it just cause an effect. In, in
0: material terms. Right, right. in material terms, right. yeah. Does anybody have a question? Does everybody, how does, so Mad doc, my question is how does that illustrate his principle, his definition? If the materialist, the the person who holds a materialistic philosophy, so she's making a distinction between being materialist in the sense of wanting possessions, because that's a typical accusation, we're materialists, we want to fill our living rooms with things, we have to have things, possessions. But a materialist, In philosophic terms means something else it means all there is is matter there's nothing more but matter that's all there is and if that's all there is everything's determined nothing can change remember we talked about the guy last night or last week who who looked at the lunatic as as being defined in terms of causeless acting which he said made no sense um, because he was a determinist he thought everything was determined what distinguished a madman was that he was his actions were causeless there was no cause Chesren's response is, that's logically stupid. If there can be causeless actions for a madman, there can be causeless actions for a sane man. The determinist theory is done for. That was, he's speaking to a determinist. So my answer is, if that's his definition, that this contraction, this completeness logically, but this um, contraction of a spiritual world, how does materialism illustrate that? Is that clear? Doctor, can you... I,
3: to me, materialism wouldn't really see it happen in the spiritual
0: world. Say it again, Mary. Materialism, philosophy would not have a spiritual world. Right. Yeah. It would It would absolutely illustrate what he's talking about. Um, and it was a perfect illustration. And I want to I, I go to Anne's comment because she... I want to make a real distinction here. This combination between a logical completeness, a man who has answers for everything, and a spiritual contraction, his world shrinks. If you're a materialist, you don't believe in miracles. You don't believe in another world. And I'm going to put it this way. A scientist will say all things, all physical events, are explained in terms of physical causalities this thing causes this you're trapped in that world and i just want to be really clear for the materialist or the empiricist the strict empiricist who only believes what his senses deliver to him he does not allow for the causalities of the spirit that is the spirit breaking in because there are causalities and we should i mean i'm going to go to this in a second i want to come back to it i really do not want to is everybody clear the spirit doesn't go against our world because he's the creator of it he's one with it he works with it but that means there are causalities of the spirit that a scientist would never admit because he will only admit what's given to his senses and by strict materials the only thing that's real is matter so for him spirit does not exist miracles do not exist God does not exist okay that means in a sequence of events in a sequence of events He will not see in a sequence of events the spirit at work when an empirist understanding won't see it. Because according to his assumptions, there's only causalities of matter. Is that clear? Chuck, you've got a question, do you? No? Is that clear? Michelle, go ahead. Come on. Sorry?
1: It goes beyond spirituality. See, goes he doesn't acknowledge the uh, in anything that are unexplainable by materialism. It's a tautology. He just rules it out. Right. Right.
0: Right. Is everybody okay? Michelle, you got... Oh, yeah. I'm just,
3: I'm just thinking um, of times when, you know, I'm trying to re- apply that to my own line. Yeah. I'm It or something and then to kind of it. So you yeah. Because I can think sometimes I could I thought material was just
0: what we were saying. Same thing. So um, yeah, it just takes me a minute to that. Yeah, no, no, I mean you got the principle, so that's good. I want to take a minute look at skepticism. And I want to come back to this because I think it's too important before we go to the next chapter. How does skepticism illustrate his definition? So he spent a good part of last chapter talking about materialism and skepticism. How does skepticism illustrate this principle? That what defines a madman is this combination between a logical completeness, a man who's got answers for everything, and a spiritual contraction, reduces he reduces everything down to what he can grasp with his mind or matter (coughs) matter what's beyond that doesn't exist how does how does skepticism illustrate that definition the materialist says there's nothing real except matter that's all there is there's nothing more there's no mind because there's a mind you can think, and if there's a mind, there's a will, you can change things. There's just matter, which means we're part of a machine. It's just physical stuff. The skeptic, go ahead, Mary. Skeptic
3: is skeptical that matter even
0: exists. Right, right. (laughs) Enlarge it, just not matter. It's everything. Everything. Right. The
3: spiritual world or
0: anything. Right. Even that ease. So how does that illustrate Chesterton's definition? I mean you've said it. It's,
3: nothing. it's so contracted, there's right. nothing. Right.
0: Is everybody clear? The materialist says everything's explained by matter, that's it. So it's one small thing. It contracts. It's a horribly contract, he doesn't allow for other things. Right? The skeptic dis- distrusts everything, he denies everything. So there's a lot of things going on that don't exist for him. There's no meaning there either. So he he reduces down. So both of those are reflections of a contracted mind, right? One of the signs of a kind of um, a less than, let me put it differently, because madness, I, I don't want to make this black and white. Let me put it differently. It's a sign of a mind that's less than healthy. Let me put it that way, Can I put it that way. It's not a rich mind, because it's not allowing for matter and miracles. One of them is saying, there's nothing but matter. And the other one's saying, nothing means anything, you know? Both of them reduce the world down to these shrunken, reductive ways of thinking. So in that sense, they're less than healthy. There's a lot they don't see. When you allow for both of them, the world becomes richer. Okay? Now let me go back, because here's, I'm so sorry, Connie's not here. Connie, I want you to know, and I'm sorry, Mel- Melody's not online. line. I would be giving her a hard time everywhere. Big test. I'd like you to go back to the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, King Lear, Chaucer, the Divine Comedy. Here you go, you guys. <laughs> I'm sure you wish you were somewhere else tonight. All of those works. Give me examples of miracles in every one of them. I didn't make a big point of them. It was not, you know, we weren't reading the Iliad in light of Chesterton, we were reading the Iliad to understand, but but you know me that when we talk about those works, there's something more going on than most people see. So one of the things that we did was to try to show that we've got this rich tradition, the modern Catholic, the modern non-Catholic has no clue of our past. Um, in the next chapter, Chesterton's going to make a lot of saying he had two beliefs, um, and I want to get to them in a minute. One of them was in tradition, and um, the first one was democracy. The second was tradition. But he said tradition is nothing but democracy extended to the dead, and he makes a big point of the dead that we can't really be, he doesn't put it this way, I don't know to put it strongly, we can't really be who we are if we don't carry the dead with us. And if that's not clear, let me remind you. In the Iliad, um, towards the end of the Iliad, after Achilles undergoes his change, he meets Patroclus, who's dead. The ghost comes to him. And it's a shocking, it's a shocking moment, an important moment for Achilles. Odysseus cannot get home without going to the land of the dead. He has all these adventures. The only one he's required, the only one on, on who his homecoming is conditioned is the land of the dead. In the Aeneid, Aeneas has to go to the land of the dead to see his father or he can't complete his mission. The Divine Comedy takes place entirely among the dead. Why? Why? Every one of those great works made a pl- ask people, to put a graveyard in the middle of a city and they they would think you're nuts. Because the modern world wants to do everything it can to deny death, get death out of our life, have fun, have pleasure. The now is the most important thing, not the past, not the dead. Um, So my question is, you've got the materialist and the skeptic, the materialist says there's only matter, which means there's no dead. And the skeptic says there's nothing, nothing has meaning, there's no dead, there's no dead, there's no Christ, there's no meaning in God dying, there's no meaning in a God. Um, Go back to the works that we just, I want to do this briefly, so be patient with me, okay? The Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, Boethius, Chaucer, Dante, Shakespeare, King Lear, All's Well That Ends Well, Merchant of Venice, those are works we all did. All of you, take your memories back. Can you go back to any of those works and recall a a miracle taking place? Kay, do you have something? Can you think of anything? Can you speak up? Sorry. Can Can you recall a specific miracle? any of those works. I know this is asking a lot, it's asking you guys to... <laughs> Go ahead. Lear and Cordelia, who t- where are you going with that? There are a few instances there's a miracle, really, something amazing in every play that we've read.
3: I just remember you saying, of always going home. Well, and the gods and goddesses would, would step in and, make, and turn the way that the battle was going, so somebody was going to be victorious. and. They could right. All
0: this right. All right. Yeah. All the t- in that sense, all the time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, you could miss it because it's it's such an ordinary thing. It's going on all the time. Yeah. Sorry. I no one. Ex- I didn't expect him to all this. Say say it louder. Achilles. Yeah. The I can't remember now who or who
3: At the end with Priam.
0: At the very end. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Yes, right. Yeah, you all remember at the end when uh, and I mean Achilles and uh, Priam met, and they wept together, wept as fathers. Um, Achilles remembering. Yeah, yeah. Let me let me go back to it before that scene, which I think is cr- absolutely—it's such a tender conclusion to the Iliad remember that Achilles lost his armor to Hector yeah, he had new armor made for him. yes that armor was from his mother we talked about this that armor was for his mother which puts a limit on him the new armor was made by a god and it comes after after he acknowledges his fault and accepts death we that to me is the center of that poem remember because I like it to an alcoholic or a drug anybody when you reach a point in your life where you admit your failings and you accept death what do you have to be afraid of when he goes back into the battle he's got new armor because he's a new man and that armor has the gods in it it's not his mom's right and from that point to the end nobody can touch him and he brings the war to an end he defeats Hector that's a miraculous moment and you can miss it right it's part of the action. It's not the God's turning thing, I mean, in any explicit way. And yet it's absolutely essential. It comes after he acknowledges he let everybody down. And he accepts death. Because after, that, if you're an alcoholic and you admit it, what do you have to be afraid of? For any of us, when we admit our sins, they don't have the hold on us. Yeah. Anywhere else, come on. The Odyssey, the Aeneid, Divine anywhere, go anywhere. Every work we've read has had a miracle in it. It's gonna be a huge test next week. A long a long is that you Connie? Go ahead. Come on. Sorry, Connie, can you turn your volume up a little bit? I know I ask everybody to turn it down. Can you turn yours up a little?
1: You need your volume up, not hers. Is it me? Yeah, I Dante
0: client Well, Dante client go ahead, what's the miracle? Right. Yeah, no, it's true. That's a good point. The Divine Comedy begins with a miracle. Dante's damned. He He tries to do it alone, tries to do it himself. The poet Virgil comes, and he was sent by Beatrice, who was sent by Lucia, who was sent by Mary. So a whole divine order is at work to save him. He can't do that on his own. So the whole action, the, the plot of the Divine Comedy, is set in motion by a miracle. We could go on, we could find other miracles there. Is everybody following? Uh, I'll, I'll pick another obvious, as um, all's well that ends well, you know um, Helena performs that miracle on the king, and Lafeu says the age of miracles is past because Shakespeare knows, Shakespeare knows in the 16th century, with the advent of science, a whole world view is changing. She does something nobody believes can happen again. She performs a miracle and cures the king. So everything she does afterward, in fact, it's it's her doing that that, that gives her the, the power to choose Bertram and he wants nothing to do. He wants nothing to do with anything that's going to t- depend on a miracle or what a woman does. We could take every play, every work, and find in the natural order of things. Now, here's where I want to go. Here's where I want to go, because I really want everybody to. See. Just pay serious attention here. To an empiricist there's no more meaning in a sequence than what your senses give to you. That's it. Matter. The causalities of the spirit don't exist there. Every work that we've read has a sequence. If you you watch a Marxist, a feminist, a Freudian, Read those works, they're going to see nothing more than those works. Empirically, what's in fact, what they're going to do is twist them to fit their ideologies Marxist, feminist, Freudian. They're going to read that work to fit their theory. They won't see what they won't see what's there. They won't see what we're talking about. I'm not, I hope everybody sees, I am not imposing these things on these works. This is not me trying to impose a Catholic Christian view on people. I hope you see that. I'm reading the work and saying, here's what's here. What does it mean? If you're any one of those groups, you're going to read it to justify your theory. So they're not going to see a larger causality in a sequence. They're only going to see this shows Marx, this shows Freud. Everybody following? The causalities of the spirit, a miracle taking place in those things—they will not see. Not for the materialist, not for the skeptic. Is that clear? Any questions? Because this is crucial. Chesterton's saying he uses the word madmen. I mean, I'm, I want to be a little bit more careful because I don't want to get into a black, and I don't want to encourage everybody to go home and think. Just because you don't believe this, you're nuts. I mean, then we are really asking for problem. But I want everybody to see that that in terms of what he's saying, it's less than a healthy mind. That the person who can hold on to empirical facts and mystery will have a larger world than somebody who can't. Not the materials, not the skeptic. Remember when we did the Odyssey, I mean, just to go back again. The difference between Odysseus, and Telemachus, and Penelope, and the good people, and the bad, were all the bad people were close to what the gods were saying. They defied them, they ignored them, they denied them. So there was a whole spiritual world denied. The suitors, the maidservants, the cyclops blew off the gods right? They denied it. One of the great themes of the Odyssey is how open are people to the divine order? And we saw in the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, that the heroes and the good people are different from others because they're more responsive to a divine order. Dante goes back to Virgil not by accident. He's going back because Virgil saw so many things that are truthful. This is a pagan. So let me stop there. Okay, that that was um, the maniac. Let me take a minute. Any any questions on that? Why it's so important? Mm, I don't believe this. I can't. You don't have. Que- there must be something wrong there. You don't have questions or a comment? No. It- <laughs> <laughs> Too thorough? Am I being redundant?
2: You're, you're quite thorough on it. I've then like bring us just out of materialism to the you know, materialism. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I've I've been
0: on that far until tonight. Yeah. So, that but you see Yeah. And I hope everybody's seen how much this is characteristic of our modern world. This this is the rational the rationalism, it's reason gone man it's rationalism. It's not reason, it's rationalism. It's why Leo, John Paul, Benedict, Lewis, Chesterton—all these men are are struggling to show what a wonderful thing reason is. What a great, great look at, watch what these men do. What what Lewis did in evolution, what Chesterton's doing in, in orthodoxy—they're showing what a great thing it is. And because it's such a great thing, how how often it's abused. We are the most, I've said it before, we are the most educated people that the world has ever known historically and probably the closest to insanity. And kids going to school right now are not being educated, they're being indoctrinated. That was C.S. Lewis's argument. When you turn away from the Tao and you you, you make one of yourself these conditioners that you're leading people into. I mean, what he's doing is saying He doesn't put it explicitly, but he, you know, his abolition of man, it's pretty stark. But once you turn away from traditional morality, you're actually taking away the ground of your own being, you're destroying yourself. He's taking on the intellectuals of his time, that's why most intellectuals do not like C.S. Lewis. They pass him off as a Christian. He's not making Christianity an argument in Abolition of Man. He's using reason as an argument. Most of the rational people in the world are going to dismiss him because he's a Christian. And there's almost nothing explicitly Christian in that book. He's defending reason. Any comments, Mary? Yeah. You know, it's like it, they were all his contemporaries. Doc, can you get my water? Sorry. It's all just hard his for me to.
3: Contemporaries, and it seems like he studied every one of them. He knew them in detail.
0: Sorry. I just, it's just so hard for me to move. Thanks. Thanks. It makes me wonder
3: who these people are today.
0: Oh, right. Right. That's good. That's, thank you. Well, you've got a beginning, right? Now that you didn't have before, because you can see pretty clearly. Some, I think, I hope that you didn't weren't quite as clear on before. Well, I knew to follow the church, listen to the church teaching, and that's doing. But the church doesn't do a lot in its catechism with reason. Oh, yeah. It's one of my. So, there's a lot of philosophies you can fall into. Yes. Or that you know, I think I'm not a quick. So sometimes I only think about it a week later or a month later. I think we're all in that same company, just to let you know. I mean I don't have a quick
3: answer. Somebody says something. Oh, I don't have oh a quick BS.
0: <laughs> I've known you for several years now that's not true. Okay, let's let's do the next chapter quickly. What I'd like to do is just very quickly go over the major um, lines of thought. Turn to uh, turn to chapter three, suicide of thought. I want to try to do this very quickly. Chesterton begins suicide of thought by saying that what's happened in the modern world is that that um, all of the traditional virtues that were a part of a whole have been um, cut in, cut, separated from each other and left to go wild on their own. And he gives examples on page two, at the very beginning he gives an example. But some scientists care for truth but their truth is pitiless. Is everybody clear? Truth is a good thing. But what if you're a scientist who is compulsively dedicated to truth, but has no sense of ethics, or pity? The the work he can do can actually be destructive when he's doing it thinking I'm doing it for a good. He can justify it by the good he's doing. I love the next one, for example, Mr. Blatchford, by the way, Chesterton got into a controversy with him, attacks Christianity because it's mad on one Christian virtue the merely mystical and almost irrational virtue of charity. He has a strange idea that you'll make it easier to forgive sins by saying that there are no sins to forgive. Blasford is not only an early Christian, he's the only early Christian who ought to have been eaten by lions. I love that line, I've always. For in his case, the pagan accusation is really true. His mercy would mean mere anarchy. Can anybody comment it? Flesh it out. What's wrong with charity by itself?
1: Charity by itself, nothing to take extreme he's suggesting.
0: Sorry, slow down. Can you speak yeah, up, Chuck?
1: Charity by itself, nothing taking to take, extreme he's suggesting because it it doesn't admit the possibility or the need, even for persuasion or reform of the subject. It excuses actually, It actually just diminishes him to an object.
0: Right, right. We've talked about this forever in this course. Enabling. You think you're doing something because you love somebody, but if you don't connect charity with law, or justice, you're going to be um, encouraging somebody to, to stay in their sin. That's where they're going to stay. And remember, I've gone over this forever. When Christ went to the cross, he said, I came to fulfill the law. He brought this transcendent divine love to it, but he was fulfilling a law. Um, the great challenge for Christians is to bring charity and justice together. Justice without charity is harsh. It's self-righteous. And charity without justice can be self-righteous. You you think you're doing good, but you could be, I mean, his word is you can be, what you're doing is leading to chaos. He goes on with a number of these things. He says, today, this is the second page, 234, what we suffer today is humility, because he's talking about humility originally was intended um, as a block against ambition. Right? because there's something in all of us that wants to be better often at the expense of other people right we ambitious we want to do well if I want to be a good basketball player it means I have to beat other people you know humility was meant as, as a check it doesn't mean you don't play basketball but it does mean you bring a you, look at basketball players today watch pro, pro basketball they can't score a bucket without dumping on some guy what do you call it when you trash talk I mean, they stand and beat their breasts and say, look how good I am. I mean, they they do everything to show they just put somebody down. So humility was meant as a check against ambition or pride. But he says, today we suffer um, from a humility that's in the wrong place. Modesty has moved from the organ of ambition. Modesty has settled upon the organ of conviction, where it was never meant to be. Um, a man was meant to be doubtful about himself but undoubting about the truth. This has been been exactly reversed. Can anybody comment that? Can anybody flesh that out? Most people today say be confident in yourself. You know that Chesterton's, I mean here a few downs, a few lines below he says The truth is that there's a real humility typical of our time, but it so happens that it's practically more poisonous humility than the wildest prostrations of the ascetic. Because the ascetic will bow down, I mean, he will detach himself from everything worldly. The old humility was a spur that prevented a man from stopping, not a nail in his boot that prevented him from going on. Is everybody okay? says it's, and I'm saying it today because I think we all know this, that today we're supposed to encourage everybody to take, be confident in himself. And Chester is saying, no, it's just the opposite. The last thing we don't is, want to do is be confident because it makes us supercilious. What we want to do is have absolute convictions about something greater than ourselves, that's called God. Because if our mind is there and not on our own pride, we're going to do good things, but not for ourselves. Thomas, St. Thomas said, everything we do should be the good of that thing itself. If we start doing it for ourselves, what happens? He's saying every one of these things is an attack on reason. That these things strike at the very goodness at the center of our souls. Okay? And he wants to he wants to show how a number of modern philosophies are attacking, once again, reason. He says in 236, that peril, the peril of the modern man, is that the human intellect is free to destroy itself, just as one generation could prevent the very existence of the next generation. That's C.S. Lewis. That's his argument, right? That by using contraceptions, one generation can radically affect the next generation. It can determine what's going to be. More men become dependent on a few men, what they do and the choices they make. It's an act of faith to assert that our thoughts have any relation to reality at all. If you are merely a skeptic, you must sooner or later ask yourself the question, why should anything go right? Because you're a skeptic, you don't believe it. The old skeptic, um, the complete skeptic says, I have no right to think for myself. I have no right to think at all. There's a thought that stops thought. Okay? So he wants to go through a number of modern philosophies and I want to take them all up. Materialism and evolution, nominalism, progress, pragmatism, and the will. Those are five or six of the most prominent philosophies of our time. So let's take them one at a time briefly on page 237 in my book. Um, It is perhaps desirable, though dull, to run rapidly through the chief modern fashions of thought which have this effect of stopping thought itself. Every one of these philosophies presented as intellectual, bright, Freeing um, has the effect of actually stopping thought and enslaving man. He takes materialism, 237. It's the paragraph that begins, this should be called loose. We've already talked about materialism, um, but he, he relates materialism to evolution because they're so closely related. He says, evolution is a good example of the modern intelligence, which if it destroys anything, it destroys itself. Evolution is either an innocent scientific description of how certain earthly things came about, or if it's anything more than this, it's an attack upon thought itself. If evolution destroys anything, it does not destroy religion, but rationalism. If evolution simply means that a positive thing called an ape turned very slowly into this thing called man, it's okay. But if it means anything more, it means that there is no such thing as an ape to change and no such thing as a man for him to change into. It means that there's no such thing as a thing. Now all of this sounds funny and flip, but it's not. At best, there's only one thing, and that's a flux of everything, because everything's constantly changing. This is an attack not upon the faith, but upon the mind. You cannot think if there are no things to think about. If one thing is constantly changing, It's not there. What it was two minutes before, it's no longer that. Is everybody clear? It's changed. You cannot think if you're not separate from the subject of thought. Descartes said, I think, this is so wonderful, Descartes said, I think therefore I am. The philosophic evolutionist reverses and negatives the epigram. He says, I am not, therefore I cannot think. I just want to, because this is, you know, it's so funny that you can Laugh at it and not think about it, but let me just. Is that clear? What's he saying? Yeah, What's, it's
1: ridiculous saying, well, matter is thinking about
0: itself. Like, <laughs> it's <laughs> but focus on evolution. Yeah, you're right, Chuck. Focus on evolution. How did what is it? What does he say when he says, Descartes says, I think, therefore I am? He says, the modern evolutionist or skeptic would say, I am not, therefore I cannot think. Flesh that out and just paraphrase it, can you, in your own words?
2: I can't put my finger on the philosophy, I'm not even sure there was a term for it, but uh, illusionism, maybe? That the thought that uh, I don't really, the world doesn't exist, it's just just a a dream sequence I'm witnessing, or uh, my imagination, that you, Bob, are just, uh, just up here in my head, you're not really there.
0: Do you realize how frightening that is? <laughs> well, yes, it is frightening. Uh, uh,
2: that, and if that's true, then maybe I don't exist either. So right, yeah. yeah. Or if what we call thinking is not,
1: it's really just the natural reaction that follows from the interaction of material But the material, how can you describe that as thought? Even? Yeah. But they're experimenting with that
2: right
0: now. Yes, they are. Yeah. yeah.
2: With what? With artificial intelligence, intelligence what yeah. you're talking about. What you're seeing, you, know, you think is reality, however,
0: it never. Or it can be explained in mechanistic terms, so you've got the model for a robot. So or all of a, sudden, can, yeah. all of a
1: sudden, the artificial intelligence is more. You mean like augmented reality? Yeah, so that's sort of a visual illusion, but the idea of artificial intelligence itself is really interesting. It's pretty, really funny if you watch these people time cells in knots. They're so far away from any real intelligence that's.
0: Their part. Yeah. yeah, Bob's point is a good one because an artificial intent. Because if your if your model is matter, and you can um, um, program a machine, because a machine is no different than you are, I mean, you can program it. You know, then you're then you're creating human beings based on that model. Yeah, well. You can program them so that we've got. What look? I mean, you can create a robot that virtually looks like a human being, and you think you're replacing. I mean, it's interesting because what's at issue, and, and it's really interesting, a lot of scientists are upset with this. They've come up with this notion called qualia, qualia, which is their term to, to describe that which is unique to a self, because you lose that in a, com, a program computer. So scientists are realizing that there's something completely unique to a self that science isn't getting to. They call it quailia.
1: This goes to this huge quadrary that not even any closer to explaining just what (laughs) consciousness is, what a mind is. Right. It's so funny. Right,
0: right. I don't want to lose the focus on evolution. The argument that he's making here is is said in terms of evolution. If evolution means that things are constantly changing, that one thing's becoming another, then there's nothing there to understand, because it's already on the way to becoming something else. I just want that to be clear. If that's true, then he can say, I am not, therefore I, so he's reversing Descartes. Descartes says, I think therefore I am. He bases his being on, this is, this is, I went to him, he's one of the prototypes of the modern this mentality we're talking I think therefore I am he makes his own existence contingent upon thinking not the fact that he is the fact that he thinks so the whole modern world after Descartes is in its head what's real is not things its ideas in your mind remember he was he was skeptical about things his senses but I, I don't want to lose the focus Chester is saying evolution is if you take it seriously, it will destroy thought itself. Because if things are always changing, there's nothing there to think about. Descartes said, I think therefore I am, he made thinking central. The modern evolutionist says, I'm not, therefore I cannot think. It he takes away the very ground because he's, there's nothing there to think to do the thinking. If you're
2: saying evolution's gonna take care of itself. You don't have to even think yeah. that, right. that tomorrow you're gonna
0: to you're already something else the minute you think you're something or the minute you think something else is. If evolution means things are constantly in flux and they're changing, there's nothing there to know because it's already changing. Yeah,
2: it is happening by itself.
0: This is partly a, um, a rehashing of Heraclitus thousands of years ago. It was what Plato had to deal with, Plato had to deal with the same problem. Plato's answer was Heraclitus's problem was if you're in a river, the, Things are constantly changing. So, what you thought you know one moment is already changed. So, he couldn't get past that. And Plato's answer to that was what we know are not just what our senses know. What we know is what the mind can grasp. And what the mind can grasp are the forms of things. So, that even though Anne now is different from who she was, I mean, I don't want anybody to take this personally. Definitely. Even though I'm not the same person I was 45 years ago, right? I'm still me because the form who I am is still me. So, if physically I'm undergoing changes, I'm still. So, even if an oak tree, when you plant an oak tree seed, is an oak at the beginning, ten years into it, it doesn't turn into a eucalyptus as a tree. It's still an oak. Everything in nature has a form, and what the mind grasps is the form, so the mind can know things. If you're in an evolutionist, world. And things are constantly in flux. At, at root, you're un, you're undermining the very nature of knowledge because you're saying things are changing. We can't do them. So, but he
2: he leaves the door open to the evolution process because he says that uh, you know if if God, who is infinitely patient, right. decides that he wants to create man in this way, then. The, there's nothing we shouldn't uh, affirm about that, right? Uh,
0: yeah, he's so he's.
2: Where's the, where's the difference? The difference is that there's a designer. The the the, the God, the God is behind the the method.
0: Quite honestly, and I'm glad. I mean, this is good, Mike. That you're when I read that passage, verbally, it's doing just what you're saying. It's le- it's leaving open um, a way that evolution can fit with creation. But I'm speaking, I'm speaking honestly, I don't know how Shakespeare would um, accommodate the two, how he'd resolve the two, because because he makes it clear, and we're gonna, it'll become even clearer in a minute, that what we know is the form of a thing. It has to be that thing, a man. Um, So um, if it's changing and it was something else and then it's going to become something else then there's nothing there to know and there's no knowing to go on so to me it's a problem but um, but yes that's what he's saying there he does leave an opening the third thing is that's an attack upon thought HG wills says everything is unique now hold on I hope this is everybody sees it's true is that eucalyptus tree exactly the same as that eucalyptus tree No. They're all unique, right? Let me put it differently. Here, on my shirt, Bob's, or David's shirt, he's got buttons down the front of his shirt. Is every one of those buttons identical to every other button? No, because every one of them, even though they have the same form, is distinguished by its matter. The matter of one button is not the same matter. Or let me put it differently. You take a tree, right? You cut it. You use the tree to make wooden buttons. You use the same form. Or take a dollar bill. Right? You take a printing. Every dollar bill is unique. But every dollar bill is still a dollar bill. The only difference between them is the matter with which each one is made. It's from a different part of the tree. Or take a blouse. You've got a long, what do you call it, daca A long roll. Yeah. Yeah. A long roll of of the fabric, whatever you call that roll, a bolt. You, right, you've got a long roll, um, and you cut the same pattern. The pattern is the same in every case, right? And they seem unique, but is there a difference? Yes, there is, because the matter of each one is different from the other, and this is a fundamental principle of Saint Thomas. Matter is the individualizing property of things. The matter of Anne is not the same as it is for me. She has a different soul, she has different matters. True for Dave, Chuck, all of us. Matter individuates things. So you can have the same form of a button, each button's the same, right? What individuates each one is the matter with which it's made. Okay. so because because each thing is unique every eucalyptus tree is a unique tree every chair is a unique chair That tree, right but there's but there's still chairs Chesterton is saying because Wells is saying every, there are no categories there's only unique there's only particular things there's only that eucalyptus that eucalyptus that eucalyptus there's only that chair that chair Chesterton this also is destructive Thinking means connecting things and stops if they cannot be connected. It needs hardly be said that this skepticism forbidding thought necessarily forbids speech. A man can't open his mouth without contradicting it. That's when Mr. Wells says, as he did somewhere, all chairs are quite different, right? So there are no categories, there's only individual chairs, right? There's only individual eucalyptus. He utters not merely a misstatement, but a contradiction. If all chairs were quite different, you could not call them chairs. And let me, because I don't want to just pass. Can dogs grasp universals? The Petrenus, a eucalyptus, do they grasp a universal? Can can an animal, a dog, conceptualize? Does Does a dog have reason? Can he grasp categories? No, he doesn't have a rational soul. A dog's caught in his senses. We've got senses so we can grasp exactly what animals can, but we've got a, we've got a power of reason so we can grasp concepts. We can grasp universals. We talked about this some weeks ago um, when we were talking about universals and how important they were. So he's saying that one of the things that distinguishes thought is its capacity to grasp universals. So all these people who say that there's nothing but unique things are taking away thought, because that's one of the things thinking can do. But if, Let me put it differently, frankly. If we didn't have a concept of justice, how could we distinguish one case from another? Because every case would be absolutely unique. Why do they have precedences in law, in jurisdiction? They're playing it against universals of something that's done because they know that there's an implied justice, some law, or they couldn't make decisions on individual cases. Yeah? Mayor, you got a question. Come on. Take your time. I'm thinking about all of this. Too fast? I don't know how to slow down. Huh? It's hard for most of us because we don't think this way. We just don't think. Can I, does everybody understand the basic distinction I'm making between an animal who doesn't have a rational soul, who has senses, and a basic imagination, I mean animals. Remember, remember Boethius, senses, imagination, ratio, we can reason step by step to get to a conclusion, and intellectus, we can see a whole Grassball, when we go, ah, I see, you know. Um, okay, I have a question. For good, you, okay.
2: My dog will not. you are going to do this. My dog will not tolerate a squirrel in the backyard. Right. He will chase after it, and if he catches it, he'll kill it. Yeah. He doesn't act the same way if, if a cat gets in the backyard. Yeah. He tolerates it. Yeah. You know. Right. So. It, <laughs> Does he have a rational understanding that that is a squirrel, that is a cat? Good. Uh, Good, yeah. Or is he responding to a stimulus? Does
0: anybody want to try to take that on?
3: Well, the opposite of that, when my Britney Spaniel was a puppy, never having been taken hunting in his life, he came to the door with a baby rabbit in his mouth, which he did not bite or harm in any way, right, right. and dropped at my feet. He had the concept that you retrieve this and you bring it to him. You know. Yeah. You no, know, I, I think that they see the stimulus and they can go maybe, I think you're saying imaginative or something like that. They can go a little bit beyond it. If a dog knows that it needs to go to the bathroom, it recognizes that I. I go to the door. Yes. So they can connect yes. but they don't have the full thought. Process.
0: Right. Yeah, they can't conceive the interesting St. Thomas would would know this stuff. I mean, he there's there's nothing that he didn't think about these things deeply. So he would say all all senses partake of reason. So you can train an animal well, here let me give a better example. You can train a, one of the one of the images of some of some nobility. The man used to be the soldier on a horse. That's gone forever because we've got tanks and airplanes and machine guns. But just think about that image of a of a soldier, a commander on a horse. This the the power of a horse, a good horse, who is trained not to be afraid in fire or you know things coming at him. The courage of a horse. Because a good soldier would have trained his horse to deal with those things so, say with a dog we can train dogs so that what exists at a sensory level in a, on a dick on in an animal partakes of something rational it's susceptible, but can it go as far as a human no it has imagination it can be frightened of things and I also think it had animals have memory they can recall things but they can't conceptualize um, Humans can help take them to something, but they certainly have memories So that one animal, you know, will go after squirrels and not, for whatever reason, I don't know. When others, when other dogs won't go after squirrels, maybe you know, who knows? I don't know. But I think we can safely say generally that that the distinction is universal. Animals have senses; they don't have rational souls. They can't conceive. They do have memories. They have imaginations, but they're all rudimentary. But that just shows that all of those things are susceptible, can partake of reason. That's why humans can dignif- bring a dignity to animals, because well-trained animals can amaze you sometimes at you know, how good they are when they're well-trained. Lots of people, I mean, Suzanne came home today with our one of our grandchildren, she described this um, golden retriever crossing the street left alone back and forth you know that lots of people just let their animals go and they get killed but lots of them take time and when they do it helps protect them when they couldn't protect themselves Um, here let's go to the next one I want to see if we can't get through this Um, the next um, 239 so he's done categories. The nominalists, this was the great debate in the middle of the Middle Ages, and I would say, here listen, I want everybody here, almost all moderns are nominalist, whether we know it or not. Moderns grew up thinking there are no universals, there's only our senses. So we can use association, sense association, things like that to think, but we can't grasp universals. The reason that was such a major controversy in the Middle Ages is because if you deny universals that there's any reality to universals you deny God and you deny the Trinity because they don't have bodies so this thing about categories may seem like it's nothing but it was a huge huge thing and, and I even want to add to it it's just it marks the modern world most moderns without even knowing it are nominalists they don't go to categories. They don't, that is, Chesterton, they don't think. They don't think. It, un, it, un, it takes away thought. Um, progress, he takes on. What's the problem with progress? What's wrong with progress as a philosophy? What's the one essential thing that a theory of progress needs that usually it doesn't have? Because most progress, most most people who think of themselves as progressive think things are always changing. So our attitudes towards sex today are not what they were one hundred years ago. So that means things are constantly in flux. Again, what's wrong with the theory of progress? Real
1: progress requires a direction. Requires a goal.
0: Right. Exactly. How can you progress if you don't have a fixed standard by which to measure? If your goal keeps changing where will you end up? You don't know because there's nothing directing you. I mean, Chuck was right on it. So the theory of progress will not stand if it doesn't imply a fixed goal, a fixed standard, an absolute, you can't measure yourself. You you can't say anything about what the changes that's gone in in our sexual morality today. Lots of people will say we're sexually free. If you look at our world. I mean the last thing you can say is that we're sexually free today. It's the last thing. I mean we're more imprisoned by our sexuality than people I think have ever been but. And finally the will. Or Sorry, The pragmatist. Again, what's wrong with pragmatism? It said that you've always got to be practical. The only measure of things is pragmatism. That is what works. The measure of everything should be whether it works or not so to be a pure pragmatist says what guides me is whether it works what's wrong with that Chester it's, it's do you know I mean this is one chapter this is one chapter. he's taken on every major philosophy in the modern world and is answering it what's wrong with um, pragmatism if it works
2: Takes the easiest road, the the, the least—it seeks the road with the least, the solution with the least conflict.
0: So what's wrong with that?
2: Uh, Throws standards out the window. Uh,
0: It's like the theory of progress in that sense. If you don't have. If you don't have a frame of reference by which to judge things, you won't know if it's practical or not. Because very often, isn't it true that people accomplish something and they think it's great and learn later that it wasn't as great as they thought, that there was a lot about it they didn't see, that just because it works doesn't mean it was successful or the right thing? If you don't have a fixed notion of something deeper, the fact that something works, or, or it, but lots of people... Lots of people will say, be successful. Once you're successful, you show you're pragmatic, that you've done it, you could accomplish it, Um, you got it done. But very often the success of something hides, interesting fact, almost every civilization at the height of its success, when it's most realized, um, everything pragmatic, that it got done what it wanted, it built a wall, or at that moment, that civilization was in its decline. But very often what we think is successful hides some dissolution or corruption that we don't see. John say that can you back off of your speaker because we're having I I don't know what to do but can you say it again please? yeah and it's all and it's really hard to understand if it works the best once again if you don't have a standard outside of that thing because you can think it works best and think you're successful and discover last thing the will what's wrong with making the will everything there a lot Nietzsche is probably the most famous modern who asserts that it's in the will is you can determine everything by your will Nietzsche is critical of the whole modern world because he said it lacks a will, that it's only in our wills that we're good or bad. we We need to elevate ourselves by giving more importance to our will to do things. What's wrong with that? Yeah, if you're jumping off a cliff, Chester used this example, yours is willing something. That's your will. What's wrong with that? <laughs> yeah, sorry?
3: <laughs>
0: yeah, good doc. It ends your will, it's gone. <laughs> he said, every act of will is, is an act of self-limitation because by virtue of choosing one thing, you eliminate all others. But the question is, if you make your will any everything, how do you know that what you're doing is good? By what do you judge it? How do you evaluate it? The will by itself can't. Jumping off a cliff is a. Sorry. It doesn't matter what you
1: do. That's what you're yeah, doing. right. You're going to will something.
0: Yeah, right. Good.
1: Why, why is one thing will better than another thing? Yeah,
0: why is one thing. Yeah, right. Okay, I want to. Um, let me stop here. This is just. A law, and I'm, I'm assuming, I, I, yeah, I, I'm laughing at this when I'm at home looking at this, I'm thinking, this is really, I don't, I don't like calling this a class at all. This is, is this really a meeting on learning how to think. Don't you, I mean, I feel like, you know, and what, what's ironic, because I've taught at a college forever, I don't think philosophy teachers could do this. The way as well as Chesterton does. You could take a whole course in philosophy, on modern philosophy, and never get to this. If you can trust me on that. I want to I want to quickly try to go over ethics. I want to just, I'm going to make this simple, and I hate doing this to Ethics of Elfland, but I'm committed to getting two chapters a night, so. Any questions on suicide of thought? What he's doing in this chapter is showing that almost every modern philosophy that presents itself as a form of liberation, the freedom that is showing us the real nature of man is actually taking away thought. In some way it's undoing itself. I want to. I love how he ends the. Um, I I love how he ends the chapter. I want to just take a minute with this because I really want to get to ethics. On page two forty seven, to he says, this is another definition. It's an elaboration on his earlier definitions. This is two forty six towards the two pages in from the end. He's talking about Nietzsche and Schopenhauer, and Schopenhauer and Tolstoy and Sean. He says that all of these men are on the road to the emptiness of the asylum for madness may be defined as using mental activity so as to reach, reach mental helplessness. That we use our minds to reach a condition of mindlessness. We use mental activity to reach a condition of helplessness and they have nearly reached it. He ends by giving an example of Joan of Arc and Christ on page 247. He says, um, he's talking about two books. It's called Jean d'Arc by Anatole France. I've only glanced at it, um, but glance was enough to remind me of Renan's um, Vide Jesus. It's the life of Jesus. It has the same method of reverent skeptic. This goes exactly to what Mary was saying earlier. Both of them show the same kinds of skepticism. Now wait, so so we've been talking about this stuff philosophically, right? You know that I mean to go to Mary's question, I would hope right now that you'd be able to go to a book and see things now that you didn't see five years ago. That you understand the nature of skepticism and how important the church is, to go to your point. Because right now Chesterton's ending this chapter talking about Joan of Joan of Arc, a saint, and Christ. Okay? And he's, been, he's not been talking about the church, and in some ways, he's not doing it here. I mean, he's so direct, indirect. He says, it disc- so it has the same strange method of reverence skeptic, it discredits supernatural stories that have some foundation simply by telling natural stories that have no foundation. Now, he's gonna take Joan of Arc 1 and say, Anatole France discredited Joan of Arc because she had hallucinations. So everything that Joan of Arc did can be explained away by the skepticism, that she was not a saint. Is everybody following? She was just following this hallucination. So it's a modern psychologist approach to a person, a woman, who's fighting a battle. The rest of the world is condemning her, saying she's nuts. She's got these hallucinations. So they're using a very natural thing to discredit something that has a supernatural character. that's got to be seen clearly the world is taking a natural thing and using it because of a skeptical mind because it doesn't believe in supernatural things to discredit something that has a supernatural element so he takes dismisses Joan of Arc as having these hallucinations so what she did was not heroic was a form of madness so Chesterton saying these people are mad these people are turning around saying now you're the ones who are mad. Joan of Arc is mad. But it doesn't stop there. On the very last page of Chapter 3, the same modern difficulty which darkened the subject matter of Anatole France, the, uh, the one who wrote about Joan of Arc, also darkened that of Ernest Renan, who wrote about Christ. Renan's, Renan also divided his hero's pity from his hero's pugnacity. That is, uh, um... Renan even represented the righteous anger at Jerusalem um, as a mere nervous breakdown after the idyllic expectations of Galilee. So he's separating Christ's pity from his magnacity, used natural things to discredit him, and saying, The same man who is righteously angry at Jerusalem, because remember, Christ um, um, disinherited the Jews. There's that passage where he he said I've come to the house of the chosen people and they've refusing it so now I'm turning away from you and going to the Gentiles. That's an important turn in Christ's life. So here's this turn, Um, the righteous anger Jerusalem is is the result of a nervous breakdown after the idyllic expectations of Galilee. So Christ goes to Galilee with all these expectations of what he can do and when he finds he can't do it, he slips into this righteous anger and denounces Jerusalem. Is everybody following? So, like Joan of Arc, who is discredited because of these hallucinations, this man discredits Christ by pointing to these changes. That he came to Galilee with all these expectations, and because they were defeated, he couldn't do these things because people lacked faith, um, he turned. So, it just shows a fault in Christ. So he ends this chapter with examples actually from the church, without even going to the church much. He's saying, this is what people do. They take these natural things and use them to discredit supernatural things. Because remember, everybody hold on to this. If, can I just just because hold on to this? If you're a monist, if you're a materialist, and that's all there is, there are no miracles. Everything you do is going to explain away miracles. If you're a skeptic. And nothing has any meaning, you're going to explain away miracles. And he finishes this chapter with those examples of Joan of Arc and Christ. Okay? Any comments?
1: Should we, we not then come down to the battle of what <laughs> doing? Well,
2: I mean, because you're saying, oh, it's just like Christ, they're displacing Christ because he changed his mind. Okay, so now the same thing. Can we not turn
0: around and apply that same thing right back
2: to you? Sorry. Now you're believing in miracles, so why can I not just turn it back on you? Why are you believing in miracles? Now,
0: I can start with you. <laughs> <laughs> and and we're in a box, in a box, in, in a box, in a box. We. Anybody want to respond to Bob? Does anybody have an answer to what, to Bob's question? Yeah, well,
1: I think one answer is you can say you believe here for you know it's
0: Yeah, and it's really... You rule it out. Sorry?
1: You don't rule it out. Materialist, Okay, okay. Oh, so limits the world of... It. Right. He limits his universe to that space. Right. But more of an open
2: mind is what you're saying versus...
1: That, I guess you, that's one way you can put it, yes. Yes. Well, you, I, would, I would even drive it home, but it's deterministic and skeptic. I would say, it's not just a question of your choice to keep an open mind. You have to if you acknowledge things that you can't explain. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, I mean you, you they can always turn it back. I mean, think, Bob, about the important... I mean, this goes to a question of faith, too, ultimately. Yeah. And remember, is not dealing with faith directly. He's dealing with reason. But his ultimate source is the Apostles' Creed. And he never... He, he doesn't make anything of that. But the one thing you can say is... Um, I mean, it's, it's Chuck's answer to your question. You can turn it back on a guy, but Chesterton's already taken that. The question is, in whose mind um, is there a richer mental health or quality of mind? And I thought Chuck put it well because if you're a monist you deny that they can even happen. You know, um, um, if you're not and you believe in miracles you can affirm them and say, and you're back to this point, and and it's interesting because you're taking the skeptics position, prove it. We're back with Christ, with the Pharisees, when he performed miracles right in front of them and I mean the, the examples at the end of this chapter are perfect Joan of Arc and Christ because the Pharisees response to what Christ did when he performed a miracle right in front of their eyes was to make him bad you're doing this you're doing this you are doing this is God because they don't want to admit miracles because to do that would discredit their religion their religious beliefs that's God that's not a human being doing something So. I mean, I like the beginning of what you said, that we're right back in that battle, where, where faith and reason come together. That's C.S. Lewis, that's John Paul. If we don't bring faith and reason together, um, we remove ourselves from a world of adventure. I mean, I like the way Chuck put it. It's not that you can prove it, but at least you're allowing that you know, something there more be there than you're admitting. And if you don't admit it, you're in a smaller world. And and you can begin to argue that to prove it in ways you know he's been doing that all along. I was supposed to get to through chapter. I'm not doing a very good job, job here. <laughs> this is much better than just running through it. Right? Yeah, I don't want to do that. That's why. I'm Yeah, I'm really. It's
3: a very loaded chapter. It's got loads. Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah. Here, let me leave you with this, and then I'm, what I'm going to try to do is do a very brief, <laughs> sweeping coverage of uh, ethics of Elfland, I'm gonna, I'll do it briefly. But I want to leave you with this, and then I'll do it with a question. What's the difference between Elfland, Fairyland for Chesterton and science? If I can just put that brief, he spends the whole chapter, that's what's at issue. And if you've been paying attention to the materialist, you'll have a good idea. But the, ethic, the ethics of Fairyland, what, what's the difference in his mind? Why does he keep going to fairy tales? Why they're so important for him? If we can just put this in a couple of phrases before we leave. Because I know I've worn you all out.
1: In fairy tales, humans are small, the world is really large, and, and in the world of science, humans are large, and the world is really
0: large. <laughs> <Right. laughs> Good. Yeah. I saw that. He said fairy tales explain science and go beyond. That's what I saw. Yeah. Can you flesh that out? Can you... Put it another way. Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mary. Can you add to anything to it? Because to me, science is all that we can see
3: or feel or touch or measure or something like that. Have a cause for, but fairy tales say there could be other things too. Like yeah. if we measure the universe
0: and we say this is all we can see, a fairy tale would say there's worlds beyond. There's more, yeah.
3: And in fairy tales, instead of in science, where it's just This makes this, makes this, make this. In fairy tales, uh, will, decisions, uh, virtue, changes the outcome.
0: Right. Yeah. Let me try to put this simply, uh, just because it's late, and I want to, I mean, I know it's been long. This is a lot of thinking going on. Um, Let me try to make this just simple, and we'll pick it up here. But um, the argument that he's making is that The sciences are deterministic, they're based on necessities, the determinism, things that can't be other than they are, or they couldn't predict. Part of the virtue of science is its predictability, you can say this because it can be repeated. So the scientist tends to look at the world in materialist terms, and the way we've been talking about, it, its its foundations are deterministic. So we're a part of a deterministic world, we have no free will, things are determined, that's all there is. Things can't be other than they are. And Chesterton's saying one of the things that he learned from fairy tales that things could have been other. so that instead of a tree be, so the, the scientists would say, a tree's green. It can't be other than it is. That's it. Fairy tales leaves you with a sense that a tree could have been different, because um, there's something magical. And if there is, it meant there was a magician, somebody who made it. So fairy tales, the, the difference differences in, in science we're a part of the laws. I thought what Chuck said earlier was was right on, That I can't remember how you put it, but if, if you will something, you're a part of that will, you can't step outside of it to see it. It was something that you were saying like that, Chuck. Um, in a scientific universe, you're part of the laws that you don't understand. You're a part of the processes. You don't have a mind that can step outside of them. So you're a part of the machine. In a fairyland, you're in a world in which um, there are no laws like that, but there are laws. You can't break them because when you do, there are consequences. And that's where I'm, I'm going to pick up there and make that the focus. So I'm going to I'm going to go through that chapter quickly. There's one page I want to look at where he calls, where he talks about the um, the doctrine of conditional joy. It's central in that chapter. He says. But what he wants to introduce is this doctrine of conditional joy. All joy depends on not doing something. There's a rule in Fairyland. You can do something, but it's based on not doing it. Because if you do, if you say something, the world will collapse. Or if you say the wrong thing or step over a line, suddenly, you know, there are consequences to our actions. So he loves fairy tales um, for that reason. Um, or is it going here? The, the Doctrine of Condition O. And the beautiful, he'll go on to say that fairy tales helped him see the world in a different light so that things all weren't determined. They couldn't be other than they are. That we have a free will and we can do things, which means we're in a larger, richer world. So that when he says, con- the doctrine of conditional joy, all joy depends on our not doing one thing. What does that remind you of? The apple. The apple. He doesn't mention it in, in Eden, he doesn't go back to Eden, but everything and he says that implies that. Mankind had this extraordinary world. We, we still live in it. He, his whole point is we didn't create ourselves we have no reason for grumbling our first attitude towards being born should be gratitude. We didn't deserve this. How did, what brought us into being? The fact that we've brought, been brought into being is a miracle. It's a wonder. How do we get here? And when we enter this world we've got all this good and we're surrounded by people who are making nothing of it but bad. Everything's determined. It can't be other than it is. It's an ugly dark world. Chester saying no. The first response to anything should be gratitude. It's a wonder. But hold on to that one thing, the doctrine of conditional joy, that all joy depends on our not doing something. What was the beginning of our trouble? We had all this goodness. We had all this related to Eden where everything was perfect. We had this relationship with God. What do we do? We did the one thing we weren't supposed to and all that good disappeared or got tainted. So every fairy tale rests on something wonderful and some danger, some risk. The choices that we make matter, whereas in a deterministic world the choices don't matter because it's all determined anyway. So the very heart of ethics of Elfland is the difference between, here goes you guys, Or sit back for this one, The difference between this rests on the difference between science and I'm almost and literature (laughs) Sorry, I had to do that (laughs) I had to do that on stories on fairy tales okay let's stop I'm sorry I wanted to get to the this chapter because it's really good but Anne's right there's just a lot that requires thinking to answer every one of those Um, Think about the five or six, because they're basic to our world, every one of them that we went over. Next week, I'm just going to do a quick review. We've covered it. But if you have any questions, bring them up then when you think about any one of them. And we'll do a quick review of Ethics of Elfland, and we'll go on to the next two chapters. Okay? You guys have a good week. Tonight, I'd like to send you all home to get some rest. <laughs> God.